It's 2016, and the fashion team at Refinery29 is getting ready for New York Fashion Week. So here's a little known fact about me. I used to do lighting design and installation at shows during Fashion Week. It's really an invite-only scene. There are events, parties, and shows. You hear the clickety-clack of heels, and you see people who clearly put a lot of effort into their outfit because you're there to be seen and see who you can see. But if you don't have a ticket, or know someone, you ain't getting in. Fashion Week is incredibly exclusive for absolutely no reason. <laughs> it is because the fashion industry is built upon this idea of exclusivity. That's Connie Wayne, the executive editor at Refinery29. And because of that, not everyone gets to see and witness the fancy clothes that's put on by the fancy people who make these fancy clothes. Most people don't even understand how to get a ticket to Fashion Week. Usually, editors like Connie have to email PR companies that work for the designers to get access. There's a very specific way to send this um, where people understand that you are legitimate. One day, someone from a PR company got in touch with Connie. They received an email from someone saying they worked at Refinery29. Connie thought, that's weird. We already have our tickets. And then she looked at the email. It was so close to being right, but, you know, something was off about it. She said that she was going to be sourcing new talent and old faces, which is just a hilarious way uh, <laughs> to talk about people who attend Fashion Week old faces. She said that she was hired by the director of production content, which sounds, I think, if you don't work at a publication, to be like, maybe that's possibly a job. But it wasn't a real job, and the letter wasn't from anyone on Connie's team. I do take these moves seriously. Um, but when I saw this one in particular, I got so excited because I recognized the name. It turns out this was no ordinary sneaking in letter. This letter was from someone Connie knew, who just a few years before had taken Connie's world of New York media by storm, a woman known as the hipster grifter. I think I screamed loud enough where everybody heard me. I was like, she's back! I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat a new series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest cheating scandals in history and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This story is a little different than the ones we've heard in previous episodes of Cheat. The stakes aren't super high. No one's going to die. No one's going to lose their fortune. But in a way, what happens in this story is much stranger and perhaps more familiar You've heard the sage advice of, fake it till you make it. You've probably even done it. Well, about 15 years ago, a group of people for a short space of time became obsessed with one woman. A woman who came into their lives and in a few short months turned herself into a damn good con woman. A con woman some would say helped define a generation. A con woman called the hipster grifter. And where else would the hipster grifter perform her grift than right here, where I'm recording this podcast? Brooklyn, New York. I mean, back then, it was like the hipster capital of the world. We're talking beards, carabiners for a keychain on the belt loop, dusty, worn-out Chuck Taylor sneakers, the asymmetrical haircuts, and having a trust fund, but acting like you don't. And like most people, a lot of these hipsters aren't actually from New York. A lot of people come to the city from all sort of different backgrounds. And I think you try to sort of honor that, but also allow them to do what they came to the city for, which was maybe reinvention or kind of escape. And 
And we had all done versions of that ourselves. This is Richard Lawson. I am the chief critic at Vanity Fair in the United States, reviewing film and television. Richard moved to New York from Boston in 2006 to work in media. It was exciting in the moment because it felt like we were at the sort of forefront of this new Web 2.0 culture. This was a new age of the internet, and people were desperate to be a part of the media scene. It was kind of a time of crisis and boom at the same time. The legacy media companies, Condé Nast, Hearst, The New York Times, all the newspapers, the periodicals, they were all in various states of reacting to the internet's ascendancy. And meanwhile, this whole new startup web kind of economy was booming and, and Gawker was there and Mashable. Richard had just started his first writing job at Gawker. Gawker was a website that had made a name for itself as the go-to for New York's latest gossip. My colleagues were sort of, you know, diagramming all of these little fads and things like that. And then people who read us would be like, but you're talking about yourselves. We didn't see it that way from the inside, but, you know, we were kind of poking fun at actually who most of us were in a way. And at that time, most of the people and things they were pointing fun at could best be described using one word. Hipster. Hipsters are really pushing against this, um, you know, really polished aesthetic. Um, and uh, they were wearing deep V-necks. They were wearing sunglasses indoors. They were wearing, like, dirty hoodies and very, very short shorts, athletic socks and sneakers going out. That's Connie Wang again. She's the executive editor at Refinery29. But back in 2008, Connie was just another reader obsessed with Gawker and what it was saying about the world of hipsters. They were kind of rewriting the rules about what it meant to be a glamorous sort of party person um, because (laughs) in their eyes, a glamorous party person could also look like, uh, you know, they got dressed in the dark. People love to hate hipsters. It was an insult to be called one. They thought it was cool to look like they hadn't changed their clothes in a week. Back then, I lived in Williamsburg which was quickly becoming the hub of Brooklyn hipsterdom. A lot of mostly young white folks walking around wanting you to know that they'd rejected mainstream culture. Their days maybe started at like 2 p.m., 3 p.m., and they would go party until, you know, the morning. And websites like Gawker photographed, diagrammed, and disseminated every bit of it. Hipsters gave them content, and the media coverage gave hipster subculture life. The other thing is, if you're a hipster, um, you, you, you are likely to have worked at Vice. So, I'm actually a correspondent at Vice. And we still got a little hipster vibe there, if I'm honest. There's a lot of beards and carabiner keychains every once in a while. But I wasn't there in the 2000s. Vice back then was very different to the Vice we know now. Vice was the publication that really embodied the spirit, the aesthetic, and that attitude that hipsters really prided themselves on at the time. It was provocative for provocateur's sakes. It was edgy and offensive and not PC. It was teenage boy mentality, you know, like, if I can get a rise out of you, that's worth it. That was a big part of the culture back then. People were provocative, bordering on offensive. It was largely white. There were uh, certainly some minority groups who were part of this community, but, you know, it was overwhelmingly white back then. And so, like, off-color jokes, you know, doing things that we would certainly see today as harassment or um, sexually inappropriate or having crossed lines. Like, that was sort of par for the course. Richard had a foot in both worlds, media and hipsterdom. He wasn't exactly a hipster himself, 
but he hung out in Brooklyn with the hipsters, doing what hipsters do, drinking, smoking weed, having beards, wearing tattoos. Then one day, Richard's friend Jody introduced a new girl to the group. Her name, Carrie. She was very pretty. She had this kind of straight black hair that was cut short, and she had these uh, uh, chest kind of plate tattoo. It was a phoenix, a big one. And I think she had a, maybe a sleeve tattoo on her, on her arm, too. Which, you know, tattoos were certainly a big part of hipster culture. Among her tattoos was one on her back that read, I love beards. It had a red heart and a bearded cartoon face. I mean, wasn't that a very hipster kind of sentiment? I love beards, right? I think I hadn't really met people who so fully seemed to embrace that hipster aesthetic. You know, and sort of so unquestioningly, like she was just like very of that look, like she embodied it wholly. You see, most hipsters wear their hipsterness with a side dish of irony, but not this woman. She seemed to wear it on her sleeve, proud of her identity, proud of being a hipster. But little did Richard know, meeting her would lead to one of the first viral stories of the new internet age. A story so crazy that today, some 12 years later, people in the New York media world still talk about it. I still hear it come up <laughs> in just weird conversations with people of my age. And I'm like, is that a hipster grifter reference? And you know, they'll bashfully nod like, yeah, I guess it was. That's coming up after the break. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales. For Dark Nights, good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. She was one of those people that you you meet, and as soon as you meet them, you feel like you know them, and they're interested in you, and they're interesting, and there's never an awkward moment or an awkward silence. This is Jody. She introduced Richard and the rest of the gang to Carrie. We initially became friends on MySpace. Jesus, MySpace? That's the most 2000s way of making friends. Anyway, after being internet friends for a few years, messaging back and forth about music, Carrie and Jody finally met in person and started hanging out. 
we went to a comedy show on the Lower East Side at a place called the Beauty Bar. What's crazy is I know this bar. I've done comedy there. It's definitely a hipster vibe. In the front, there's a full bar and a salon with hair dryers and all. And there was a bartender there who I knew because I went I went every week. And when we left, she handed him a note. And before she handed it to him, she, she showed it to me. And it just said, I want you to throw your hot dog down my hallway. <laughs> and then it had her name and her number. Hot dogs and hallways, what the hell does that mean? But that was Carrie's style. Another note she wrote said, I want to give you a hand job with my mouth. And was signed, Korean Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. This Carrie gal was kind of wild. She made these kind of sexual jokes all the time, in the workplace, on nights out, and people loved it. She wasn't afraid to straight up ask for what she wanted. And if the hipster aesthetic of I don't give a fuck was a person, Carrie was it. She would often make jokes about being Asian. I mean, not to kind of psychoanalyze her, but I think as kind of a defense mechanism. If you didn't know this story, then up till now, you might have assumed the hipster grifter was white. That's because a lot of the hipsters, at least most of the ones I knew, were white. But Carrie had been adopted by white parents when she was only five months old. From a Korean orphanage by a Mormon couple who then raised her in Salt Lake City. And she would kind of joke about it. Otherwise, she didn't talk too much about her family or her background. Like everyone else, Carrie was just trying to make a name for herself in the city that never sleeps. And she was succeeding. I remember her saying that she really wanted to work for Vice and they had a receptionist job going and she was going to apply for it. Except Carrie didn't really apply for it. She just like showed up at the Vice offices one day and said, I'm here for an interview and... They said, are you? And and she just kind of like lagged her way into an actual job at Vice. I mean, she had the look. Young, diverse, tattoos all over her. They hired her right on the spot. By this time, Jody and Richard had spent a few months with Carrie, going to bottomless mimosa brunches, clubbing, dancing, you know, doing hipster shit. But then one day, Carrie broke some big news to the group. I have this memory, and this sounds strange, of her chest tattoo and her talking about her lungs being sick, that there was some sort of association there where it was like, oh, just beneath that tattoo, like something really horrible is going on. She said she had lung cancer and that she was in and out of the hospital so much she couldn't keep it a secret much longer. We would, you know, talk about like, oh, we should all go up for the day and bring her stuff and try to cheer her up. And then those ideas would get scuttled um, because we just like, it, it it was not possible. When Carrie was out of the hospital, she went back to her usual sociable self, heading out to brunch, meeting the gang for drinks. But she was struggling to keep all her balls in the air. She showed me a a bank account that had $3,000 in it. And she said that was her savings. But she couldn't access it because her account was frozen. So she asked her friends for a favor. She said, I have this check and I can't cash it. But... Maybe you could cash it for me. I can sign it over to you. You can put it in your account and then give me the money. But Jody and Richard didn't have enough money to help. 
So that was pretty much the end of that. They felt bad for Carrie, but then they started to think something ain't right here. She would tell someone that she was feeling really bad and sick and was just in bed or in the hospital. And then I would see her later that day and she would be completely normal. It turns out everybody in the group of friends was starting to feel suspicious. We had our own private doubts that we didn't share with each other. Until one day when they were all having dinner together. And one of my friends said, listen, I just, I have to say this. I, I don't think Carrie has cancer. And there was a huge sigh of relief like a palpable relief in the room of everyone just saying like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. That's all they could talk about for the rest of the night. But they couldn't be sure they were right. We went back and forth. Uh, we kind of poured over all the evidence. We were looking at our, our texts with her and our messages and just kind of trying to, I think more than trying to prove that she didn't have cancer, we were trying to kind of convince ourselves that we had gotten it wrong. But they couldn't prove themselves wrong. It looked like Carrie had been telling little lies to everyone. Her story just didn't add up. How could she be getting cancer treatment in the morning and then be out partying later that same day? Why would she tell one person she was at a hospital appointment and then go out with another friend instead? With the sudden realization that she had lied, the friends iced Carrie out until they could figure out what to do. Then finally, Jody decided to confront her. That's coming up after the break. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Jody was sitting at her computer with Gchat open. She took a deep breath and began typing. We're having doubts about the story you're telling us, and you, you tell one person one thing and another person another thing, and it's really confusing. And Jody waited for a reply. I was trying to give her a, a space to come clean, 
and to just say, you're right, I'm lying about this. Finally, she heard the familiar ping of an incoming message. She just said, well, if you don't believe I have cancer, I can't really prove it to you. I guess I could show you hospital documents, but other than that, I don't, I don't know how to, to prove to you that I have cancer. And I said, I don't, we don't want to see your hospital documents, so I guess you can't prove it. And she said, I guess I can't. And that was it. They never spoke again after that. It's funny reading it back to, I can read how nervous I was to be confronting her, even just over, you know, text, basically. That whole conversation seems bizarre to me. I mean, first, it was on Gchat. That's weird. And okay, Carrie was lying about having cancer. But after keeping up the lie for so long, why wouldn't she put up more of a fight? So the friends didn't see Carrie again. But a few weeks later, Richard heard her name at work. Remember, he works at Gawker, which was pretty much the companion guide to hipster life. We weren't using Slack because Slack didn't exist then. There was something called Campfire, I believe, which was sort of our chat room. And I like jumped in there and I was like, I know her, I know her. So it turns out Carrie was lying about more than just her health. After getting the job advice, she immediately started flirting with one of her coworkers. In true Carrie style, she went all in. Cracking jokes, talking about sex. Her colleague liked it at first, but then he decided to Google her. And the first thing that comes up is a picture of Carrie's face on the Salt Lake City Police Department's most wanted list. She was wanted for forgery, retail theft, and $60,000 in bad checks. So remember those checks that she was asking Jody to cash? Turns out they were a scam after all. Imagine I give you a check, I sign it over to you, and you take it to the bank and cash it. You give me the money, but then the bank realizes that this check is no good, and they take the money out of your account. But by that time you notice it, I'm long gone with your cash in hand. So that was Carrie's scam, and she committed it over and over, often with young guys who fell for her sexual comments and her brazen jokes. $1,000 here, 800 there. Vice fired her on the spot. And this is the moment that the hipster grifter was born. The New York media went wild. They reveled in it. It's true crime to some extent without any really high stakes. There's no tragedy really involved. It's juicy. And all these new internet media outlets were made for this kind of story. Gawker basically even had a hipster grifter correspondent. Every day there was something new about her Craigslist hookups, her one-night stands, even an interview with someone who was making their name as her celebrity impersonator. That's just tragic. She was now a full-blown viral story, and that's how Connie heard about her. It was just part of my uh, daily news consumption. I was really drawn towards her story. I followed it with a lot of hunger. Connie, who we heard from at the start of the episode, had been watching the story unfold from her college dorm room. And she was part of New York or Brooklyn lore for me, or hipster lore. She was like a mythical hipster creature. Remember Carrie's hot dog pickup line from earlier? Well, someone told the media about it, and now it was everywhere. It was a joke, and you just heard it through the streets of Brooklyn. Like, everyone was like, I want you to throw a hot dog down my hallway. 
in fact, I still hear it come up <laughs> in just weird conversations with people of my age. And I'm like, is that a hipster grifter reference? And you know, they'll bashfully nod like, yeah, I guess it was. Something was so weird and surreal about it that it was natural that she was going to become a phenomenon in New York. Yeah, but Carrie's luck was about to run out. In May 2009, Carrie received a message from a local musician. He asked her to come on tour with his band. Wanting to escape all the news coverage about herself, Carrie accepted the offer. She packed her bag and headed to meet him in Philly. But when she got off the bus in Chinatown, Philadelphia police officers jumped out of an unmarked black car and arrested her. It was a trap. The hipster grifter was finished, carted off in the back of a police wagon and sent back to Salt Lake City to serve nine months in prison. Then a few years later, Connie moved to New York to work as a journalist, joining the hipster culture she had always wanted to be a part of. She was working at Refinery29 for the upcoming New York Fashion Week when, who does she see trying to get into the show? I think I screamed loud enough where everybody heard me. I was like, she's back! (laughs) There, trying to sneak her way into the show, was Carrie, the hipster grifter back in New York and back in the same rusty-ass con game. Connie couldn't believe it. After serving her time in prison, Carrie hadn't given up and was back in New York City trying to reinvent herself. In some way, Connie admired her for that. Despite her history of lying about having cancer and scamming 20-year-olds out of their money, people kind of wanted her to succeed because she was just a blown-up version of what we all are trying to do when we're young and figuring this shit out. What really surprised me about Carrie was that she was Asian. Um, I think that I always assumed that for someone to be that forward and brazen about sort of lying um, in predominantly sort of white spaces was white people. I wouldn't credit an, an Asian person for, I guess, being brave enough or or. God, I don't even say being deluded enough to do this because I don't think it was uh, it was a delusion. It was it. What is the difference between delusion and confidence? You know, for her to not have any imposter syndrome as someone at the time who had a ton of imposter syndrome, all of these things that I at the time was you know scared of of doing, and I admired her for it. She was very much an antihero in my eyes. In New York, almost everyone is an imposter. Like Carrie, we've all fudged our resumes and faked it until we made it. Carrie embodied what most come to New York to do. She just took it one step too far, or maybe a couple steps too far. Richard, Jody, and their friends had narrowly escaped the hipster grifters con, but it was kind of cool to be involved in such a big moment of hipster history. One thing I think that a generation needs to sort of understand itself, or a little tiny corner of a generation that I occupied and we occupied, is a sort of lore, you know, a mythology. And someone our age breezing through running a con in the way that, you know, we've you've read about kind of scam artists. You're, you know, it's a common trope in movies and TV and all that. It just felt really exciting to have our own scandal. It's strange that this story ended up being so huge. I mean, it is fucked up that you fake cancer and fraud these dudes out of their money 
But outside of that, she was an ordinary, outspoken young kid just trying to hustle for a job. But it did blow up. And people weren't even mad about her scams. A lot of women of color actually considered the hipster grifter like really, really important. Um, and we were all rooting for her success. Not a single person was like, oh, how dare she do that? I mean, it was a funny story. You know, it was a satisfying story for people. Idiot hipster kids in New York get grifted by idiot hipster kid. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month. Or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Mira Kumar. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Lizzie Jacobs, and Ella McLeod.